So we like to provide our services. So it's like choosing a mortgage broker or a real estate agent, like a real estate agent that's been able to provide you with opportunities, a mortgage broker that's willing to provide you with the relationship and the quality of lending possible. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Have you been curious about how appraisals work? Well, today we have Myron, who is going to speak to us about commercial appraisers and what they look for. And he is one as well. And uh, he's been a real estate investor, also an appraiser, um, has actually appraised our one and only Inspire Beach Resort and has done a great job. Um, Myron has a lot of knowledge across uh, the country about how to appraise different types of commercial properties. And uh, so I think that today we are in for a treat, something completely different. But before we bring in Myron, we are going to hear from Dahlia Barsoom at Streetwise Mortgages on this week's tip of the week. Dahlia, over to you. Hi, I'm Dahlia, founder of Streetwise Mortgages. Spring has sprung, and we're starting to see purchase activity come back to the market. In fact, we're starting to see multiple offers all over again in some markets. On that note, I wanted to share with you a tip about amortization, because as you arrange for a mortgage. Amortization obviously is going to have a big impact on your ability to pay that mortgage fast or slower, as well as on your cash flow. Here's something about amortizations that many clients don't know about. On the residential side, meaning one, two, four unit properties, rental properties, including sometimes five or six unit rental properties, clients assume that they can qualify for 30-year amortization. On the multi-family front, clients assume that they can get a 15-year amortization with CNC. Both of these things are true. They are options that are available to you. However, amortization is bound by what's called the economic life of the property. Think about it this way. If you're going to lend money on a property, you want to make sure that that property is going to outlive the loan. So if a lender is giving you a loan at a 30-year amortization, they want to make sure that that property is going to outlive that 30-year by at least five years. The economic life is something that the appraisers talk about in the appraisal report. And the age of the property, as well as its condition, influence that number. I've seen sometimes amortizations come below what's expected. However, going back to the appraiser with context around what the property is all about, any work you've done on it can sometimes help the situation. And I've seen appraisers reconsider the economic life with proper context because a lot of things can really go wrong based on assumptions and clarification, communication, and context are everything. So keep that in mind. Now, if you're going to select amortization, assuming the economic life is there, I invite you to consider the longest amortization that is possible. So on a residential property, go for a 30 years. If you are qualifying with a B lender, take the 35 year or the 40 year. On the commercial side, multifamily side, if you're applying for a CMHC mortgage and the property qualifies, take the extended amortization. Why? Because an extended amortization is going to offer you breathing room. It will help your cash flow, especially in these markets we're in right now. Give yourself choices. You can always control what's called the effective amortization on a mortgage through the prepayment privileges. So let's take a 30-year AM mortgage. If you were to go with a bi-weekly accelerated payment, you can cut off about four years of the life of that mortgage. You can cut that down to about 26 years. What you will see in the market is that some lenders are going to offer you discounted rates on shorter amortizations. Don't be tempted to just 
look at the rate, look at the big picture. Yes, you're going to get a more expensive rate taking that 30 year. But if you go to a rate calculator and run them out, you will see that your cash flow is going to be better as a result of the extended amortization, despite the higher interest rate. And then you can choose how fast or slow you want to go. To support investors who are currently purchasing properties, we are offering a fantastic promotion, not just in Ontario, but across many other provinces, including Alberta, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba and New Brunswick. And here is what it is. If you are buying a residential property of one to four years, and you are submitting an offer to us within the next 90 days, regardless of the closing date, then we are happy to cover all of your legal fees, excluding disbursements. If you're buying something at $700,000 or more, and we would cover half of your legal fees, excluding disbursements, if you're buying something at $500,000 or more. If you are in the market for a monthly family property, whether you're purchasing or refinancing, then we are giving back $5,000 cash back for loan amounts above a million dollars. Again, if you submit your deal to us within the next 90 days, regardless of the closing date, we are here to support you. We're happy to answer any of your questions. If you would like to utilize these promotions, email us at info at streetwisemortgages.com and use the code cover my legal fees. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dahlia. Myron Chanthirakumar is going to be speaking to us now about commercial appraisers and appraisals and what you need to know. Enjoy the podcast. Myron, welcome to the show. How are you? I am doing well, Sarah. Good morning. How's your day going so far? It's going well. I'm actually at, uh, at my cottage um, nice. and, uh, in Lakefield. And I basically move from May and I come back in September. And then I, I'll, I'll go back to Oakville like one day or maybe two a week. So this is kind of like my summer, how I, I disconnect as much as possible. What about you? Uh, yeah, no, so far so good. I'm in downtown Toronto right now. Under the past couple of days, weather's been kind of gloomy. So I've got some sunlight today, but uh, kind of enjoy this downtown summer weather. Hopefully, so excited for that. Awesome, awesome. So remind me, did we meet at the Have Your Cake and Eat It Too retreat last year? Is that the first time we met? We did. Um, so I reached out to you, kind of getting more idea about the retreat. And I, with COVID, I've got to meet you in the personally. So I thought this would be a great way to kind of meet you and your team, kind of learn about the entire resort process. And trust me, one of probably one of the greatest experiences I had, like in terms of having a retreat outside our normal get together and networking session that we've had. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to do another one this year. Um, but you know, one of the really cool things, and this is how we started working together, I suppose, is that <laughs> you're like, I just appraise another resort not that far from here and like you like i don't know the resort and the amount that you basically uh appraise it for i'm like oh this is pretty good i wonder what we would get once we're done <laughs> you know at least phase one uh right. and then i guess fast forward to 2023 we had you and your team uh appraise our our little resort. um and so thank you for that so we can definitely talk about a little bit about that because that's what you do yeah. for a living Yes. So I'm a commercial appraiser by trade. Um, I'm an AIC candidate, so I'm still working toward my uh, license to complete my license, but I do get to like, you know, bring in my own clients, do the business development aspect of it. And I kind of, and I work with a team that are fully certified AECI and they review the reports and make sure that, uh, you know, they meet the market fundamentals and the assumption for values is as reasonable as from an appraisal standpoint. So there's obviously, you know, appraisals that happen for residential properties, which I'm sure many of us are familiar with, right? Like you're basically right. comparing it based on market comparables, um, whether it's a house, a duplex, you know, three or four units, et cetera. It's, it's based on a few different things. But um, right. when you get into the commercial realm, uh, I feel like it's a lot more complex to appraise uh, at that point. Uh, yeah, I, for me specifically, especially since I do have my own real estate portfolio myself, I find commercial a bit more um, easier 
in terms of understanding what the value potential would be strictly because it's an income potential game. So we can either, you can provide a performer in terms of the expected rent you're able to achieve, the operating expenses, and kind of get an idea in terms of where that value would be. Whereas on the residential side, it's really based on transactional um, comps, right? So like if property's on your street, um, one person selling it way below market value, you can kind of deter and start a trend, especially on the residential side of the business. So for me, I, for clients that I deal with, they do prefer commercial. And also from a financing standpoint, there are a lot of uh, benefits to that compared to the residential aspect of the game. Okay, so... You know, because there's, there's, to me, so to me, I mean, to you, it's easy, but for me, it still feels more, more complex, I suppose, um, because there's so many different things, right? Like, I mean, a resort right. is completely different than a building. It's completely different than, uh, you know, a mixed use building. So like, what are some right. things maybe that you could share with the audience on like what you actually look for when you're appraising uh, a commercial property? And then if you want to go into the silos, we could do that as well. Yeah, of course. So I'll start with multifamily because that's majority of the clientele. I'm sure the listeners are in the multifamily aspect of the game, but um, ideally class C multifamily buildings, um, you know, older buildings, limited amenities, those buildings typically are being sold at a lower cap rate. So how the cap rate system works, that the lower the cap rate typically means the higher the potential of the building. From nothing, that's what traditionally that's what's going to happen because every buyer may overpay, but Ideally, the lower the cap rate means that there's more potential on the building, whereas the higher the cap rate, the limited potential on the building. The reason for that is as an investor, they wouldn't want to purchase a property that is fully stabilized because then their capital in term, and their investment into the building is quite limited in terms of how much the return that they're, gonna, they're going to get. So a cap rate is essentially what that return would be if you were to buy that property in cash. So we don't look at debt servicing. We don't look at which lender you're using. We don't look at the interest rates. Um, it really comes down to the net operating income of the building. So your rental income, there's laundry income, uh, there's income for parking, storage. It could even be for signage. And then your operating expenses typically is property taxes, insurance, for sure, utilities. And that comes down to hydro. So if you have separate hydro meters, you may have hydro for common area. Then you have gas, water is typically what the landlords are responsible for. Newer construction, a lot of uh, developers and landlords are making it plus utility. So the, the tenants are responsible for all utilities, which means it's a lower risk to the actual owner of the building. And then you got like lawn care, snow removal, um, advertising, maintenance, payroll and benefit, and then management expense and repairs and maintenance. Um, now we also have vacancy as well, depending on which city you are. So vacancy typically taken into consideration um, in, to calculate the effective growth income. So I have a lot of clients who add vacancy as an operating expense, but to, it is the rental income minus you add all your um, income and then you take away the vacancy and that ideally gets you your effective gross income and you take that amount and you deduct all the operating expenses. So it's and a that big... gives you your net operating income at the end, essentially. Yes, right. And that net operating income, that is what an appraiser would use to determine, okay, like what the income of the building is, and then they would apply a cap rate. Now, a cap rate is where a lot of people kind of get confused that, okay, like, well, if you're, especially in a tertiary market or secondary market, there's only limited data. So a lot of national brokerage like CBRE, Cushman and Wakefield, Collier, they have their own market data report in every region. So that's more of a benchmark. But what we typically do is we actually pull the cap rate of um, public data that is released and we see, okay, like the property sold for like a million bucks. What was the and they'll post the cap rate on that. So we'll have an idea what the and net operating income is. So we look at the net operating income of a building at a four cap, and let's say you're having net operating income that is $5,000 per unit more than what that comparable is. And then we, we see a, um, a trend that's pointing towards an upward of a cap rate. The appraiser will use their knowledge and their experience and their market data to determine, okay, what range they would be willing to apply. Um, a lot of investors now are doing as complete and as is, especially for multifamily, because they're buying, um, the lenders are lending based on the potential and they want to make sure that there's enough skin in the game to ensure that they will be able to pull their capital at the refinance. So we're doing a lot of as complete and as is. So there's a lot of ways that um, the, the growth in multifamily is substantial. Re retail to residential conversion, I know you're doing a lot of those. 
uh, mixed use. So ideally we are appraising based on the potential of the building, even though it is a mixed use, it's like we are looking at what the as complete is. And then we're kind of working our way backwards to see, okay, what is the true value of the building as is? Yeah. I mean, you know, and, it, and it, I think it's pretty fascinating just because you could take something that, you know, is completely empty and then create a value out of it and then after repair value, but you're right. Like that's essentially what, what investors or lenders, I should say, want to see is they want to see when it's completed, what is this thing actually going to look like? Yes, of course. And even with land too. So like flipping paper is a mm -hmm. big thing in the commercial side. Like you can take a raw land, uh, put it through site plan uh, approval and get get a rezone to whatever you want to build to the highest and best use. A lot of people do feasibility studies. A lot of the brokerage, commercial real estate brokerages do feasibility analysis of the highest and best use. And you can sell that land to a developer based on its potential. Now you've got to kind of hold the property through that phase, especially in Ontario. It much, takes much longer to get um, a lot of approval. And then, so there are different values in different stages. So you can buy a property from like a hundred thousand, it can shoot up to a million dollars, uh, depending on what, um, the highest and best use of that property is. Yeah. I mean, and that's, uh, that's a hurry up and wait game because <laughs> it can be very, very <laughs> lucrative. But you're waiting yes. a long time for, uh, you know, if you're if you're changing zoning, you know, you can do really well. But like you said, like you're you're of spending course. a lot of money, obviously, uh, you know, going through the process and you're not on uh, a timeline that usually you would want to be on. You're on the timeline of the city and the municipality, which sometimes can be like a very long time. Like we're talking like a couple yeah. of years. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So, OK, so you've got that, um, you know, and the cap rate, I think you, you kind of mentioned a little bit like. If you if you don't have a ton of cap rates or, um, you know, like if you're in an area that is maybe growing, gentrifying, like, are you ever like, where are you getting your cap rate information from? And are you ever looking at like, you know, the cap rate being different by the time that the exit happens? So like, here's an example. So maybe the right right now, the cap rate is 5.5. Um, and right. then you're projecting an increase or a decrease in the market. Like, do you change the cap rate on the exit for the after repair? uh valuation yes yeah, so the after repair value would be a higher cap rate essentially than the current cap rate now depending on the stabilization and renovation period like the cap rates may change so a lot of the properties that are being sold right now and the public data that are available so we have a lot of national subscriptions uh, as part of our commercial real estate brokerage that release a lot of public data because we have access to those information um so we're not really using like um you know local real estate board um, information we have access to those but um, in terms of data we have like data firms that provide those information and the way we look at cap rate is especially in a city where there's not much information we may have to expand our searches to secondary and tertiary markets around that area for example like if you're doing something in woodstock and there's only limited data in woodstock we may have to reach out to guelph london us uh, maybe even Kitchener Waterloo, but we do know that they are um, a superior market compared to Woodstock. So then we would do our adjustments as necessary. But a lot of the time we do find um, information within cities, at least one or two comms. And a lot of the properties that are sold right now are technically under contract probably about three to six months ago, maybe even longer because commercial properties typically, typically have a longer closing date. So the data is lagged. So even though right now, for in the market and we may see a trend at a five percent cap rate like any properties that are being sold right now we may not even have that information until three to six months from the road so it. the data is lagged but we are seeing a slight upward tick in cap rates and if we are doing a you know one year stabilization renovation period and we see that right now you know cap rates are transacting at a six percent based on the net operating income of the building at that time we may or may not put a slight upward adjustment on the cap rate just because we see where the market is going um, in terms of the interest rate. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey there, fellow investors. It's your favorite real estate expert, Jamil Remtula. Today, I want to share a tip that many new investors may not be aware of. Are you ready for it? Don't be afraid to negotiate. That's right. Real estate is a negotiation game. And it's important to be willing to make an offer and ask for concessions. You might be surprised how willing sellers can be to work with you if you approach the negotiation process with confidence and respect. But remember, the worst thing they can do is say no. 
So if you're ready to take your negotiating skills to the next level, I invite you to contact me for a free 15-minute consultation. Let's work together to get you the best deal possible. Head to my west website, jamilramtulu.com, to schedule a consultation today. And now back to the show. So a higher cap rate, because I know sometimes like it's taken me a while to comprehend this, but a higher cap rate essentially would mean a lower after repair value. A lower cap rate would mean a higher price at the end. Yes, yes, yeah. So lower cap rate means a higher price. Um, a higher the cap rate means lower the price. But that's on the purchase side. When it comes to like the value on the after repair value, it's the same thing. Lower the cap rate will increase the the value of the building. Um, but it really comes down to the net operating income. So yeah. if I'm looking at a class C building and a class A building, um, a class A building new construction, even though you're getting a high net net operating income when it's fully renovated. The if the lower cap rate than a net operating income of a class D building, because it's a superior asset class in terms of quality, the tenants you're going to be able to achieve as well as the construction, as well as it just in terms of the amenities that are available. So, for example, if you're looking at a retail, uh, an institutional client would be willing to spend a higher pre- a premium on a property that has a shopper drug mart, a bank, or class A tenant in that unit. Because it's just in terms of the tenant, the tenant quality in terms of their their willingness to pay rent, right? Mm-hmm. Those kind of institutional tenants are not going to be willing, like they're not going to fall back on their rent, right? Because they just have a lot of skin in the game. Whereas if you buy like a retail plaza with a lot of mom and pop stores, where it's not at the great, like anything can happen. Especially during COVID, a lot of these shops had to go um, into bankruptcy or they couldn't pay their rent. Whereas a lot of the institutional tenants um, are able to do that. So same thing with the tenant class. We also look at the location and neighborhood. So if you're looking, if you're in a really rough neighborhood that hasn't been gentrified and we have a comparable that is in an A location in that same city, ideally that's a slightly of a higher cap rate. But then we also look at what the rent, because typically, so in commercial versus residential, if you have like a duplex, an appraiser would walk in and look at the quality of the renovation. They will look at, hey, like of course countertops, what kind of flooring are you doing? What kind of lighting? and all the information that goes in. In commercial, especially in multifamily, the rent typically attract the kind of quality of the renovation you get, right? So if you're in the high end of the rental market, it means that your quality of renovation and the quality of the building are able to attract tenants that are willing to pay that. So it is really an income-based valuation. Um, we do sell comparison analysis too, but we're still looking at the NOI per unit of those sale comparison because any sale comparison, like people are not, doing a still adjustment summary chart when they're looking at a commercial property, they're literally buying it based on the net operating income of the building. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's definitely important. And I think it's also important to, um, you know, also look at like what your exit looks like and, and use, you know, your analysis as part of the due diligence. I mean, most lenders are going to require regardless and as, right. and as complete uh, appraisal and and also it costs it doesn't cost five hundred dollars guys it's like three thousand <laughs> right so I mean I don't know yes. if you have a range but like let's talk about that because like that's part of the due diligence process for many of us as we're buying non residential assets uh, whether right. it's a resort multifamily conversions of some sort you know a commercial right. to residential but like what are we talking about like five six seven thousand bucks. If you're looking for an as-complete, as I'm probably looking at around the $5,000 range, depending on where the city is located in Ontario. But the important thing is that you can find a lot of um, appraisal shops that are on the low end of the, um, in the spectrum in the local market. So we're based out of Toronto, but majority of our clients are institutional clients. So like that's our main focus. So we like to provide our services. So it's like choosing a mortgage broker or a real estate agent. Like a real estate agent that's been able to provide you with opportunities, a mortgage broker that's willing to provide you with the relationship and the quality of lending possible. You're not really going to negotiate their brokerage fee or lending fee or even the real estate commission, right? Because no, because it could be a matter of like thousands of dollars that they can help you with <laughs> versus, <Exactly. laughs> like, versus like trying to nickel and dime for a grand off, you know? Right. So like for us, it's the same thing. It's like we're, we're not going to change the value of the report just because you're paying more like ethically. That's not what's going to no, happen. No. Right. But we're, you're, the service you're paying for is the communication. Like you can give me a call at, like when you're making a purchase in an area and be like, hey, Myron, like what are the cap rates are you seeing in that location? 
So it's not even just that phase when you're getting a report done. It's like the it's the access to an appraiser before mm-hmm. or after um, you get a property under contract. And once you build that relationship, like you're all that a lot of my clients are they're just a text message away. They're like, hey, can we schedule a call? They're looking to buy in a new city. And then I'll just pull some data that we have and it'll kind of be their consultant through their process. But I'm not really charging them for my time and consulting fee with all that information. But when we get to that point, it's just that the information that's available, like I'll take my clients out for, um, you know, to a restaurant to we'll get them coffee and just build that relationship and see, hey, like, where are we looking to get to that portfolio? And how can we, in terms of how can I provide you with the market fundamental to make an informed decision when that when you have to put an offer on a property? Because a real estate agent may only see one aspect of the game. And a lot of real estate agents are not investors themselves and mm-hmm. they only know to the information they have. So I just want to make sure that we as an appraiser at on an appraisal team that we that does all of Canada. So I've done appraisal work in BC, Saskatchewan, uh, did a lot in Alberta. Um, I did two recently in Manitoba and Saskatchewan, and now we've started to do stuff in New Brunswick. So we're able to, it takes time to get familiar with a lot of information, but for sure, Ontario, like we've up, went up to, um, flew to Thunder Bay, flew to Sault Ste. Marie. So there are clients that are willing to have us travel. Now it comes with a fee, but once you have a, a large substantial portfolio, a lot of clients don't really care about spending a few thousand just to get the appraiser out there. They rather be have some comfort that hey, through the appraisal process, they're going to have some guidance, some consulting throughout the entire phase. Yeah, I mean these are much higher ticket items, right? Once you get into the, the commercial multifamily space, conversion space, resort space, right. that you know it's definitely you know I I am a big re- like relationship believer as well that you've got to have a, a good expert team on your you know on your side. Um, and that can grow with you. And so, um, you know, that's what I, I would rather have that and pay a little bit more than to have to chase somebody for weeks and weeks before I hear back from them. Um, and (laughs) so I think that's important. So I guess you get to travel to some cool places. Uh, yeah, like like, I've driven to, I've walked through properties where I'm like, thanks. Like I would never want to walk into this property again. Uh, we try making sure, luckily a lot of our clients, they're pretty sophisticated to buy in good area and great locations. Um, but there are a few times where, you know, we've had horror stories kind of walking in and, you know, you have some in multifamily, you've got to deal with a tenant, right? A tenant doesn't really know what an appraiser is, right? Like they think there's somebody coming in, taking pictures of their belongings, but we, we try our best to make the, the phase as simple as possible, but we, we deal with tenants a lot. Yeah, no, for sure. So, okay. So you're, you're obviously in the commercial space now. Do you, do you touch anything industrial? Yes, we do a lot of industrial. So let's let's talk about that, because I, I don't think that's a category that many people play in yet. Uh, but I think it could be a very, very lucrative category um, for course. the right deal. But let, let, maybe just give us your, your thoughts. I mean, you're obviously a, a very savvy investor yourself, but give us your thoughts on like, you know, that that arm of things uh, and then just how you would appraise something, you know, like that. For sure. So in the pandemic, the two hottest asset classes were multifamily and industrial. Office and retail, depending on where it's located, had one of the biggest struggles through that phase. But with industrial, there is a lot of like changes happening right now. A lot of um, shops are moving into warehouses, like online, where if you look at Amazon, like in terms of a lot of the orders that were being placed online, a lot of people got comfortable with online shopping, right? Um, so if we're looking at the 401 corridor and we're just looking at straight down to Windsor, looking at the QEW straight down to St. Catherine. Um, 410 straight up north and then we got 427 straight up north like these are all like major highways even 400 so a lot of the corridor along the land along those are pretty much where accessibility for truckers right and land is very limited for industrial development so we were doing appraisals for um, a lot of our clients institutional clients who had like you know, I'm talking about like hundreds of industrial properties across Ontario and Quebec and in Canada. And they were reaching up to a 2% cap rate, even a 3% cap rate, which is very, very low, right? But in Ontario, it's just the demand for what people are paying. And even small business too, so industrial condo. We've seen a lot of people getting into industrial condo just because um, people just want to get away from the residential tenancy act. Right? So what, so, what is an industrial condo? So let's say you walk into... Uh, a plaza, right? So single story. For me, we'll talk about the GTA. 
So if you're looking at Mississauga and you, you're driving down and you see like a single story, all brick uh, industrial building, you'll see like multiple shops. So they can be like different warehouses and then they have a garage at their back. So they have like a clear height. Um, that kind of, that's something we take a look into in terms of valuation. Uh, we look at what the tenant lease structure and the biggest thing that a lot of people love with industrial is TMI, right? So the tenant is responsible for uh, management, insurance, and then taxes, right? So if you're, if you're a single tenant industrial building where you have one tenant, they're essentially responsible for all those expenses. That's how the lease is structured. So from a landlord, you basically don't have much expenses other than the normal um, repairs and maintenance that are required based on the lease and you're collecting rental income. Hence why the cap rate is low. So another thing with cap rate is it's a lower cap rate if it's less risk to the actual landlord. Same thing with multifamily. So if you have a tenant that, um, if you have a building that is structured that all utilities are responsible of the tenants and you have limited common area, then from a landlord standpoint, they all they're doing is collecting rental income on that building. It's a high performing asset class. Same thing with industrial, industrial condos. Um, it is a high performing asset class from the landlord's perspective. But a lot of industrial condos are typically owner user where someone looking to operate their business out of a shop. They want to use that facility as storage. And even moving into another um, sub market within industrial is self storage. A lot of people want to get away from the residential tenancy act, where as you're on the commercial side and it's simply where you just rent out the self-storage units and it has very minimal um, maintenance and you're streamlining the, the system where you have the electronic gates. So they have the key fob. So you don't really need an employee on site where older shops have an actual employee on site. So a lot of new um, institutional or even investors looking to enter the self-storage game they're systemizing their process where they don't need an actual employee on site, electronic, uh, making everything um, electronic where they can make the same thing with the Airbnb, you know, uh, make it as efficient as possible and just collecting rent, which is the best part of being a landlord. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Experience Inspire Beach Resort. It is the resort that we have been building and it is ready. So if you are looking to host events, team building opportunities, retreats of your own, and just even potentially hang out with your friends or family or colleagues, you can rent out a cabin, you can rent out the entire resort. Inspire Beach Resort, it is an adults only, it is Canada's only themed resort specifically for adults and the themes are really nice they're really upscale like you have like the beach theme you've got a rustic lodge theme and a vintage hollywood and we are adding more every year but there is uh, an awesome space that is on the water to host your retreats your events your business meetings planning meetings all of that good stuff so check that out inspirebeachresorts.com now back to the show yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, the RTA and the LTB, they're definitely making it more and more difficult. And investors will always be invest investors at the end of the day. So whether it's commercial, right. whether it's like, you know, doing something different, we're going to find ways because I know we are resourceful. But I'll, I'll tell you, because I, I think, you know, the storage facility has always been something of interest, but it is really difficult to find something that is actually for sale because I feel like a lot of the owners keep them forever. And then yes. um, changing zoning on land to build is like almost impossible because you're not offering any jobs, like you said, right? right? So, but like, what are you seeing? Like, what are you seeing? Like, you've probably seen a few come through uh, on your end. Like, are these on market, off market? Are these new builds? Um, like these storage units, how do they come into people's people's hands? So we're so the majority of our clients that we have, um, they're big clients across Canada. And they are a lot of it off market where they have the resources and the team. So these institutional industrial companies, they have a team of 50 employees, right? So it's not like a mom and pop investment company where they have people doing market research, market data, they're doing demographic analysis, self storage is all demographic. Like we need people, like people in that area need to have, are willing to spend additional money to store their product, right? So they have to look at discretionary income. So there's so much more data that is involved with um, self-storage and we're getting a lot of new construction as well, um, providing like um, heating and cooling services, um, maybe additional amenities to, depending on the client they're trying to, trying to attract. 
but the clients that they're trying to attract are based on going back to demographics of that specific neighborhood. Um, so a lot of it is off market and some of them are buying land and redeveloping them into the self storage. So it's very difficult to compete with institutional grade um, real estate investors because they have so much manpower and so much resources. Whereas for us, we only have limited employees that we can hire and we have so only so much influence with the city in terms of where we can take the highest and best use of that property. So they're also uh, friends with the politicians, basically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know about that, but I'm sure they've done a lot of work with the city yeah. um, that they know how the city works and they probably work with the city in terms of what the official plan is. So another yeah. thing with commercial appraisals is that a lot of people think zoning is the highest and best use, but really is the official plan of the city. So we, um, any commercial appraisal reports you look at, there'll be an official plan looking at the land use huh. that determines what the highest and best use. So you can have an industrial zoning with a high density um, residential official plan, which means that if you were to buy the property that's industrial, you can rezone it to uh, any zoning that meets that highest and best use for high density residential. And the city will be uh, working with you to get to that stage because the city wants to make that neighborhood to achieve those kind of development projects. So always look at the official plan. That's where you can make a lot of your money based on just flipping the zoning and selling it if the official plan makes sense. And you want to make sure your real estate agent is aware of that too because if the real estate agent is only listing it based on the zoning and not the highest and best use, they're leaving a lot of money on the table that the owner could make. Yeah, great, great insight. That was uh, that was really good. So you're seeing a lot of stuff come into your plate uh, or on your lap, and you're analyzing and you're appraising. Um, you know, just in in overall category. I mean, obviously, it's going to always be deal dependent, but overall category, twenty twenty three onwards. Like, what do you think? Like, are like some of the top types of investments, commercial wise, uh, that you know you see the most uh, opportunity with? I think for myself, with the clients that I'm dealing with, industrial for all will always be the top of the asset class, just with the amount of businesses coming in and the amount of supply um, of products and these businesses that have to serve for um, a lot of these orders that people are buying, right? Transportation trucks, um, even land for to have transportation truck parks, they're limited as well. So I think industrial will always be the the hottest asset classes. Now, multifamily, I think we're not even at the end in terms of where the prices should be with all the population coming, you know, all investors are talking mm -hmm. about it. They have to go somewhere, even though interest rates are high, ideally people still need a place to live. So new construction, multifamily, that's probably going to be the biggest thing right now where people are um, trying to maximize the land of their the building. Uh, so a lot of buildings that they currently own are not, um, to the highest and best use. So they're looking to either add a very commercial building to the back or, you know, demolish it and build upwards. So I think multifamily is a great asset class and new construction, especially. So if you can find opportunities where either redevelopment or land that can be developed, there will be your best uh, opportunity right now. Okay. All right, cool. What about yourself? I mean, you're also a real estate investor, you know, maybe just share a little bit of like what it is that you're currently investing in, uh, maybe what you're, what you like to have in your portfolio. Yeah, of course. So I started in 2019, October, bought my first single family home in Windsor uh, for 257000 which I wish the market was like that yeah. right now. And uh, since then, I started getting into a multifamily. So once I got my first property, I had to deal with my first tenant. I moved in. She stopped paying rent. COVID hit. You couldn't even visit the property. And I went through the phase of getting her out. Not going through the landlord-tenant board. We came to an agreement and she she left. After that, I started learning about vendor take back, creative financing, raising private money, which is like OPM. And I started understanding the game and how financing and valuation work kind of put that together. And since October 2020, I purchased um, slightly over 40 units um, in Sudbury as well as Windsor and no JV partners. So I kind of followed the way Kellen James, I know you guys were all in a webinar. Um, mm -hmm with Henri on London, I was there too. Great. It was a great platform. It was great to see everyone um, 
perspective in terms of how they've been able to grow their real estate portfolio. I think for myself in the beginning, since I was able to get a lot of vendor take backs, I was able to negotiate that on various properties, find lenders that are willing to lend with the VTB in second position. They, that kind of helped in my favor. So since then, I have my own employee in Sudbury that works strictly for me, my renovation team. And at this moment, I bought, I bought eight properties in, um, in 12 months about like a year ago. So right now I'm in my stabilization phase. So last year I've only bought one. So I think I'm just trying to take it easy for a bit, get as much capital lined up, make sure I get some rental income in. Cause a lot of investors think that just because, and it's a mindset game. You feel like if you're not buying, you're not doing anything, you know? So I'm just trying to get to that mental stage where just relax, enjoy what you can, and then start planning ahead in terms of where you want to take your real estate portfolio. Yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with looking at your current portfolio and making it more cash flowing, uh, right. better, you know, like repositioning it like, yes. you know, and maybe your single family could potentially be a duplex conversion down the road or, or three units. Right. Like there's nothing wrong with looking at current portfolios and then taking a step back and like enjoying like what you've done. Cause that's a lot, a lot of units in a very short amount of time. So that's, that's great to hear. Yeah. It's been a busy, busy two years. So 2023, but the stabilization year. And, and with the VTB, I think that's also interesting in second position. So how do you negotiate a VTB in second position? Like, do you just ask them, you put it on paper on the agreement of purchase and sale? So a lot of mine were off market. I bought two, uh, about 14 units, sorry, 11 units that were on the market that had to be, that I was able to negotiate a VTB through MLS. The other ones were off market. So for me is. When I was first learning about VTB, then I started offering on it, especially off market. A lot of people thought I was a scam, especially when you ask the seller, hey, like, would you be willing to finance a portion of the down payment? But it was the way I was asking it. Like, you never want to offer a VTB till you hear the whole story from the seller. So for an example, um, there was an off market wholesale duplex, a single family with an in-law suite, which I eventually converted it. And I reached out to them. They wanted 360, I went in at 330, got it under contract. But there's two facts that I knew is that they wanted more money and they didn't get it. And number two, and then the seller told me how during that time they were operating a gym and they needed to sell the property because the tenants weren't paying rent and they needed to cash up. So there are two things. There was one thing I know for a fact is that they would want more money because they need the money to support their gym that they have to liquidate. So I offered, I'm like, hey, like, you know what? Why don't I offer you 340,000? And if you were to secure 10%, of uh, 340, so it would be 34,000. I would be willing to pay you 6% a month. And this was in November, 2021. And this will allow you to defer the taxes into the 2022 of that 34,000. So you're making more money on your interest, you're getting the money you need, but the 34,000, which you may not get now, you get to defer that tax into the next year uh, in six months. So she actually countered offered at 350 for a one-year BTP, but I knew that six, six months is all I need. So I was able to get it, got a credit union to fund 80% of it. I only had to put 34,000 and it appraised at 615, right? So I basically cashed out, paid her off, got a full burr. So during that time, I stole my single family in Windsor. So I had about a hundred thousand dollars. So I got this, this duplex and then I came across a vacant five unit building and that was for 450. So it was a vacant turnkey five unit building off market. I just had to do this dining on the roof. So I was like, this is a huge opportunity that I don't want to miss, but I only have a hundred thousand and I didn't want to bring a JV on. So then I got the 34,000 secured. I went to the fiveplex and I'm like, Hey, like, would you be, um, how much do you need from the sale? And they were like 400,000 because they had no mortgage on the property. And I'm like, you know what? I can offer you 10% if you secure 50,000 on the deal. And long story short, we were able to get that credit union funded 75%. I put in. 14% and that's all I put in 11% down. And with, I bought seven units with a hundred, I took a single family home that I sold and I bought seven units. That five unit building, I had a, got appraised two months later for 715,000. But with the market taking a shift with the first interest rate hike in March of 2022, I decided to sell it for 790,000. Because at that point I'm like, you know what? Cash is probably the best thing, especially at the rate I scaled. If you don't want all your money tied into real estate, so I sold it, cashed out at 790, kept the duplex. So as of right now, I've probably raised about 630,000 in vendor take back mortgages and all of them have been paid except one right now. So I have about 160,000 that I still have to pay on my upcoming refinance. That's amazing. But, sorry, one thing I want to add 
VTB is all about the value of the building, right? So you want to make sure your exit strategy is as solid as it is because especially mm. with the rate hike, you may not get the loan to value. Value is one thing. Loan to value on financing is one thing. So make sure you speak with your lender and then get come to the uh, to the appraiser because you want to ensure that, yeah, you can get a $2 million valuation, but if you only qualify for a $1.2 million mortgage and you're buying it at 1.4 uh, uh, on the purchase, well, you're just going to have a lot of money tied in. Yeah, because they they look at like what like a depends. On, I mean, depends if you're a CMHC with MLI or not. Right. But like like you're probably like at a one point two DCR, right? So like if your debt yes. coverage ratio is like way off, then regardless of like what the appraisal comes back in, like you just said, it you may not even get the value of it, regardless, right? Of okay, whatever whatever the lender can justify to give you. But I like your VTB story. I, I that's actually how we bought how we bought the resort, though it was actually on MLS. Um, but we bought it for one 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 point one mil. Uh, right. And we did a VTB in first position for 850 at 5% for two years. We ended up actually just getting private money and paid them out early. Um, right. But, you know, like land is not that easy to purchase, uh, especially sure. raw land with a decrepit house. Um, and so <laughs> that one, I think we were all in like just under three mil. And then it, you guys like did your your thing, appraised it right. at four seven. Uh, and we just uh, we used a credit union for the exit. So, uh, you know, now we now we've got to bring in the income, bring in the money. but. Uh, you know, and that's and that's phase one. So we'll definitely for have sure. to come back for phase two, <laughs> phase three, phases. as we add more cabins and the main lodge and all that stuff. So yeah, and I'm looking forward to that. But uh, no, that's good. That's awesome. So the next part of the podcast is the lightning round. I'm going to ask you five questions. You can give me the first answer that comes to mind. You ready? Yep. And now just a quick pause to hear from the midterm rental tip of the week. Aisha, over to you. Welcome to your midterm tip of the week. Today we will continue with the midterm income analysis, the seven steps. This week we will look at step five, comparing the midterm rental income versus your long-term rental income. You want to look at what your gross monthly estimated income is with your long-term rental versus your midterm rental. Add on the additional expenses you will incur when choosing the midterm strategy and looking at the total of what you will make each month after you receive that midterm rental income and minus your expenses to determine whether the midterm rental strategy is the right strategy for your property. For more information and to have your property analyzed by our expert team, please contact www.midtermrentalproperties.com. Awesome guys, reach out to midtermrentalproperties.com for additional information. Back to the show. All right. So question number one was your favorite real estate investing book. Ooh, I would say not real estate investing, but it would have to be Rich Dad Poor Dad. Just the first initial eye opening in terms of where I should take my life towards. Absolutely. All right. Question number two, not necessarily real estate related, but do you have a favorite podcast? Um, for me, it would be Canadian True Crimes. Okay. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard of it, but it's like a lot of horror stories, a lot of murder, like mystery and stuff like that. I love mystery. So for me, it's like for long drives, I do love enjoying that. Awesome. Awesome. And number three, what do you do for fun? I love playing sports. So typically uh, basketball, um, I do enjoy nightlife in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So just like traveling new restaurants, um, going to a lot of bars, trying new drinks. And just like the whole nightlife scene, maybe because I'm still in my mid to late 20s, I'm sure I'll be burning out by the time I reach the 30s. It's funny because a lot of my friends were in the early 30s, like they, they're at 10 o'clock, they're done. And I'm like, hey, like, why don't we just go have some fun and network? But the beauty of what I do in the industry, a lot of the people I hang out with, they're all in commercial real estate. So we're always meeting new people and building our network through that in terms of clients and market information. So yeah, we are having fun going to food, trying new food and stuff, but we're always gathering information and seeing what people are up to in their own place of work. Very cool. I, uh, I, I used to live in Toronto before I moved to Oakville and I miss the food. I miss the brunches. I miss all the restaurants. Like it's just like a yes. whole other level that Oakville doesn't have. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you, when you come back to, to Toronto and try that, let me know. We'll definitely yeah. Have yeah, for sure. Awesome. Number four, if you lost everything tomorrow, all your money, all your assets, how would you start again? For me? Oh, good question. I think for me, I would go straight into multifamily commercial since I do have the knowledge I have right now. So it's probably starting to the 10 to 20 unit building. Um, I would get a creative financing, but also I'm in a position where I can leverage um, 
a lot of debt for private money from the instead of getting giving equity position away um, and also deal structuring. So I think for me, we're getting straight into commercial multifamily and starting with that. Okay. All right. And last question. If somebody has $50,000, they want to get started in real estate in some capacity, how would you recommend they spend that 50 grand? First, I would say number one, 50,000 is going to be very hard for you to get 20% down in any secondary market in Toronto. So I oh, was sorry, outside of the greater Toronto area, um, unless you're in a very small tertiary market, I would say take 10% of it and get yourself into education um, and getting into rooms where um, you get to meet people and learn a lot about what they did and how they scaled. And the remaining amount is either joint venture, partner with someone, or you borrow money for the remaining 20% down and you try getting your foot through the door and you start with a duplex, triplex, and fourplex, get a couple of, get a couple of situation, deal with the certain situation. And then once you get confident, start building and scaling. Okay. All right. Awesome. Thanks for playing the lightning round. Myron, where can my listeners reach out and find out more or connect with you? Yeah, of course. So Instagram is the number one platform I use to connect with you with data investors. So Myron D M Y U R E N C. And even for commercial real estate valuation, reach out to me on social media and then we can connect, jump on a call. I actually have a link on my Instagram page where people can book a console call for a commercial real estate valuation um, for the project. Now, remember, it is not a coaching call in terms of where the, I, people get confused. I'm like, hey, like I can't represent you from a coaching side as well as an appraiser side because it's just a conflict of interest. Of so it is strictly um, a commercial standpoint. And then I do have a coaching call um, section as well if you're looking to learn more about real estate scaling or anything commercially lifted related. Amazing. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for all the insights. And thank you for uh, appraising our cottage at Inspire <laughs> Beach Resort. We're like so happy that we found you and you had recently done another one. I'm like, all right, we got to get this guy. No, likewise. <laughs> it was great working with you guys and your team. So uh, beautiful project. Can't wait to come back again and stay there. And uh, truly, I think you're setting um, the, the stage for a lot of people looking to get into that because I wanted to go see what you've done. And the impossible seemed possible, right? You just got to put your mind towards it. So thank you for all of that. And I'm sure you're inspiring a lot of people to get into that, um, into that asset class and finding opportunities where they can build a portfolio for themselves in the, uh, in the resource space. Awesome. Myron, thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Take care. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.